I'm Scott McGowan, and this is Point Blank, where we close in on the ideas and stories that shape PLNU. Point Blank is sponsored by the PLNU Associated Student Body, so if you are a current student, the show is brought to you by you. If you've seen the Zack Snyder movie 300, you probably think of Gerard Butler as a ripped Leonidas who dies valiantly for Greece. But you also know that in 480 BC, the squabbling Greek city-states unite to achieve one of the great upsets of Western history. They defeat the god emperor Xerxes of Persia and secure their independence. But if you look just 40 years later, you find the children of those victors using that precious independence to continue their squabbles and vie for dominance over each other yet again. Sparta versus Athens versus Corinth versus Thebes versus everyone else. Enter Sophocles and his play Antigone. The story of Antigone is an engrossing epic of family rivalry, civic duty, and of course, the threat of war and the vicious generational cycle of violence. But if you've seen or read Antigone, what you may come away with is a deeper wrestling with the human condition. You're faced with a testing of moral fortitude and the strength and wisdom to truly know when it is time to listen and learn and when it is time to act. And then you notice that both require courage. Okay, that's a neat story from ye old ancient times, but who cares? Well, fast forward 2,400 years and take a trip 4,000 miles nearly straight south from Greece, and you might find yourself on Robben Island just off Cape Town. You are sitting with hundreds of prisoners, all non-white South Africans, and you're enjoying a rare break from the grueling, even deadly physical labor that marks most of your waking hours. You're watching some fellow inmates perform Ye Old Antigone by Sophocles. In one of the lead roles, a short but bright-eyed prisoner is playing the King Creon of Thebes. This is Nelson Mandela, the man who would go on to challenge and peacefully topple one of the most powerful and inhumanly racist of institutions, apartheid rule in South Africa. This system had developed over generations to essentially enslave the black native population to a white minority ruling class. Hardship, prison, and death had built a level of resentment many thought would result in horrific massacres if it was ever challenged or overthrown. But when Mandela left prison, he came out armed with and dedicated to a morally strong creed of nonviolence and a trust in the ability for true, open, and healing dialogue to save his nation. Years later, reflecting on his time in prison, he would say of his time performing Antigone that he had read some of the classic Greek plays in prison and found them enormously elevating. What I took out of them was that character is measured by facing up to difficult situations and that a hero was a person who would not break down even under the most trying circumstances. From Sophocles to Gandhi, Dr. King, Mandela, and Desmond Tutu, and beyond, the idea of civil discourse as a means to heal and move forward has proven a powerful ally for those that want to draw on the best of our humanity. But it takes courage and moral fortitude. To discuss this idea of civil discourse today, we have PLNU's own Dr. Thank you, Lindsay Scott. Lupo. It's fun to be here. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot that you have done and are working on. And I think there's probably plenty of students at Point Loma that have no idea. So this is a fun first time for them to know we have um, such a well-versed person in um, all these areas right here on campus as a resource. So um, that in itself is a just a great, <laughs> a great bit of knowledge that we hope our students come away with. Um, 
but I'm also curious uh, for you, you're, you've done all this, you're not a PLNU alum, but you're here. Um, how did that happen? How'd you go from, I believe, Newport Beach, where you grew up, to deciding to bring all of your many gifts, talents, and experiences here to our campus? That is a good question. It's um, It was by accident, <laughs> or, you know, Providence, I'm not sure. Um, I, let's see, I, I went to UC Santa Barbara, then I moved to San Diego and got married and um, started grad school at UC Irvine, but I commuted to Irvine from North County, San Diego. Um, and I had just had my first baby. I had Charlie. She was, I don't know, four minutes old, and I realized <laughs> I wanted desperately to stay in San Diego um, and didn't necessarily want to go on the national job market with my PhD. Um, San Diego's hard to leave. So yes. I started sending letters to universities um, around San Diego in the hopes that I could get my foot in the door with an adjunct position or something. Um, academic jobs are incredibly hard to get, as you know. Um, and um, it's funny, I sent them to all the typical universities around here, and then my dissertation advisor said, have you tried Point Loma Nazarene University? And I said, that's a nursing school. Thank you, dissertation advisor, yes. <laughs> Turns out in Boston, he grew up right next to ENC, and oh, so okay. he was um, very familiar with the Nazarene faith and and the university system. So I sent a letter, and um, it arrived on Dr. Kennedy's desk, who was the chair at the time, <laughs> yeah. uh, around the same time that my now colleague, Dr. Beal, was going on maternity leave. So long story longer, I ended up in an adjunct position in that semester. Dr. Kirkamo announced his retirement, and I applied for the position. Yeah, and Dr. Ron here. Kirkamo. What year was that? Was that 07? That was 07. Nailed it, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was my junior year. Yeah, and I will say, I the first time I stepped into that American government course and talked to the students, I was blown away. I mean, how so? I the students here were just, and it's still I say were, but I'm thinking back to that moment in time. They remain the, this way, um, so engaged and empathetic and kind and intellectually curious and just in it and and I remember thinking gosh what would my college years have looked like if I had gone to a school like Point Loma huh. and I don't regret going to UC Santa Barbara at all but um I just think I, I would have had a different and and perhaps better experience and so I, I fell in love with the idea of the liberal arts and the idea of Christian higher ed and and teaching to the whole student and the importance of the humanities in combination with so much more that you learn yeah, I, that's interesting to hear you say that. I'm curious if, with your experience in various academic settings, do you think that maybe gives our students a bit of a, um, our, our culture gives our students a bit of a leg up or, or a, a, a maybe a, just a bit more possibility they could grasp the ideas of something like civil discourse and actually run with them maybe more than a student at, at UC Irvine? Yeah, Not to name I names. do because I think... I think here it's ingrained in our culture that you listen to people's stories and that mm -hmm. you remain open to new perspectives and that you learn the why behind what you're learning. Um, in my general education at UC Santa Barbara, I don't think I was ever told why I had to take all those courses. And I know students at Loma sometimes feel that way too, but um, 
you know, for the most part, I, I think that we're we do a really good job here of of um, encouraging the leaning in of of taking all of these courses across campus and being um, exposed to different disciplines and understanding how they all thematically tie together. Um, yeah, and I think it it just makes for friendships developing across campus and and understanding the bigger picture. Yeah, and and it sounds like when you came in, you were able to recognize that pretty quickly. And I'm guessing from the work you had done, some of those themes of that maybe more openness or willingness to listen were already prevalent in your work. Um, what what in your what are some maybe share some of the key moments in your story that got you interested in? Um, open discourse or civil discourse? Um, maybe actually, you know what, maybe maybe briefly tell us what you think that term, when you hear civil discourse, what does that mean to you? Yeah. yeah like it's a lot and you know, maybe take some time with that but and then we can talk about your history there. Yeah, I think civil discourse to me means a willingness to genuinely listen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think civility can often be confused with politeness and I don't think it needs to be that because I don't when we talk about civil discourse I don't want to give the impression that it means you always have to be super polite and super nice and therefore hide your feelings sometimes civil discourse necessitates anger Hmm. and being infuriated and frustrated but where it tips into incivility is when you shut yourself off from engaging in the conversation. And so to me, civil discourse is the willingness to sit and talk with others and hear their perspectives and hear their story and hear their experience. And again, truly hear it, like really listening in that moment and and engaging with as much empathy as you can. It does not mean walking away in agreement. Mm -hmm. It means walking away and being willing to continue the deliberation process. That's the beauty of democracy, right? Is that you take turns, you rotate power, you engage in deliberation and discourse and conversation. And that's how policy is made. And not everybody is happy, but yeah, or at least that's how maybe effective or maybe good policy exactly. can be made. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It actually reminds me of a, a PLNU professor who I had who repeatedly would say, uh, it is not a commandment in the Bible that's, there's no commandment in the Bible that says thou shalt be nice. And I hear that in what you're, you know, you, there's not a, you know, that it's important that as you go through that listening process, as you, as you challenge yourself to bring forth empathy, you still feel the feelings that you're feeling and maybe examine them and know why, you know, start learning why, but that, that this blanket need to just, or, or expectation to just, um, just be nice all the time can actually get in the way of actually making that internal change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So that's really powerful. <laughs> that's really intense. That's heavy. Um, but you've had an interest in this and engaged in this really for a long time. So what was your first first memory of interactions with these kinds of conversations? So I, I remember growing up um, and perhaps having a different perspective than some of my peers. Um, and I remember feeling as though the last thing I wanted to do in high school or middle school was get in a political argument with yeah. anybody. Um, so it, it became a matter of finding my 
my voice in high school and then later in, in college um, and realizing that I, I grew up around a lot of people who didn't see the world in the same way that I did. And so it, it took some, it was an exercise in, in listening and, but also being able to sort of stand firm on my beliefs and my values. And my parents did an amazing job, I think, of um, the dinner conversations that we had. And we, we sat at a dinner table every single night and um, we engaged in a lot of these political conversations in a way that I think was really help, healthy and um, smart. You know, it was based on being well read. It was, you know, the expectation was that you were current on mm -hmm. events and that you also engaged um, with literature in a way that, that brought some evidence to the table. Um, so I learned that at a very early age. And then, um, I don't know if you want me to dive into sort of the story of my connection to South Africa yes. or, okay. Yeah. So it goes from there into having a, a pretty amazing story that connects to our little intro about South yeah. Africa. What, what's your connection with South Africa? So, um, we, in, in the early 1990s, uh, 1993, we had a close family friend who was a Fulbright scholar in Cape Town, South Africa. She was 26 years old, a graduate of Stanford University. Um, she was finishing up her Fulbright year in Cape Town, and she was killed in political violence um, four days before she was set to return home. Um, she had intentionally chosen to study at a predominantly non-white university in Cape Town. She was studying the role of women in the transition to democracy and out of racial oppression in South Africa. And so she very much wanted to embed herself in the communities of color in South Africa. Um, so studying at this university, she had a lot of non-white friends um, and she was driving them home one day in August and in the township in which they lived, there was a, a riot, a pr protest um, about a, a teacher who had been fired. Um, and it was a period of time in which the racial violence in South Africa was heightened because the end of apartheid had been announced, but the transition process had not begun. And so there was a lot of confusion and uncertainty. The stakes felt high, felt like a zero-sum game. Um, and uh, she was driving them home and ran into this protest and um, not literally ran into it, but was driving through it to try to get them home. And four young men um, stopped her car and pulled her out and stabbed her on the street. Um, and she died right there in the street. And oh. for me, I was a month away from leaving for college. Um, I was a biopsychology major, did not really have an interest in political science or race studies or anything, um, but I found myself very confused. I knew she had been a strong advocate for the end of apartheid policies. She was a strong advocate for racial justice in South Africa. Um, she had a free Mandela sign on her mortarboard when she graduated mm. from Stanford, but I didn't really know what that all meant. And so I threw myself into um, black studies courses at Santa Barbara to try and learn more. And in the months that followed her death, um, it was amazing for me to watch her family um, turn what was obviously a very tragic moment into an opportunity for forgiveness and healing. Wow. 
her parents reached out to the parents of the four young men who killed her, and they actually flew to Cape Town and met with the, the parents of these young men who were now in, in prison. And they slowly began the healing and the forgiveness process. And when their family went through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process, which is the commission that South Africa set up to um, deal with the tragedies of four decades of apartheid, um, her family very publicly advocated for amnesty for these four men, which meant that if they were willing to admit that their crime was a politically motivated crime, that they would be set free. And her parents supported that, and her um, four killers received amnesty and were set free. And today, 25, how many years later? Yeah. More than 25 20, years. Yeah, um, 27. 27 yeah. years later, um, two of her killers still work side by side with her mom every day um, through the Amy Beale Foundation, which currently serves um, thousands of kids in the townships of South Africa. And I've, I've met with two of the, I would say, young men. They're not young men, they're my age. We're, we're all older now. Um, I've met both two of them um, twice in my life. Um, uh, they turned their life around and um, their story is so incredibly powerful. And I say all of that because I think it was the first moment that I really started to sort of put the pieces together of the power of listening to someone's story um, and the power in being able to empathize and um, you know, hearing how her parents took, took a minute to just sit with the fact that these young men had grown up under such unbelievable repression and to, to take the time to think about how that might make anyone willing to be a bit militant um, mm. was a really big lesson for me. Yeah, and generationally, right? They had also grown up with knowing that as far back as they could, as their families could trace, this had been the reality for them. Exactly. I am. Um, yeah, I. Rem I. Um, the my husband and I traveled to South Africa in two thousand and four, um, and we we got in. Okay, so we went to the the Amy Beale Foundation one day. And that's and, I, that's her name. That was the name sorry. Of the, yes, her yes. name. Her name was Amy. Um, Amy Beale, and we. It was like the fourth day, I think, we had gone to the foundation. And um, that day, we wanted to travel to Guguletu, to the township in which she was killed. There's a memorial there to her now. I should say her her story was very prominently known. I mm. mean, it was everywhere. It was all over the papers, both when she was killed and when her family went through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process. So we got pretty used to seeing her family like on the front page of the LA Times. Um, so in 2004, we, Grant and I traveled to South Africa and went to the Amy Beale Foundation one day and said, we want to go to Guguletu and, and see the Amy Beale Memorial. And um, her mom said, oh, that's great. I have a meeting, so Tobacco is going to take you. And Tobacco was one of the men who killed her. Wow. And wow. I was, I was okay with it. I mean, I, I had been sitting with this story for a long time, but my husband, who had never met Amy, and wasn't as familiar with the story. I just saw physically his body react. Wow. Like we're getting in the car and traveling with the man who killed her. 
And we got in the car and he took us on a two and a half hour journey through the Gugulatu Township and started with his birth until the day that he killed Amy and told us the story of his upbringing and what it was like to be black in South Africa under apartheid. And I mean, by the end of it, we were, I think, all three close to tears. And my husband, I just, I mean, he said, I've never had a more powerful, life-changing moment of listening to someone and hearing the why behind such a tragic thing. Um, So it was a really powerful day, I think, for both of us. Wow, that's amazing. So that really is, I mean, been formative for you and and bring you to your this passion of seeing that this this um, different way of communicating of connecting with other other people mm-hmm. is powerful and maybe um, one of the better ways we can <laughs> we can bring ourselves forward as a as a as a world as a people. Yeah, if you think about it, connecting with people like you is really easy. Yeah. Connecting with people who don't see eye to eye with you, that's that's hard, but critical. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's something in the middle of this that you've been mentioning a couple of times that I think maybe um, bears some explanation. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think maybe a lot of our students and even plenty of our <laughs> faculty, staff, or alumni might be listening, aren't really that familiar with what that is and how much that is the central piece of how South Africa was able to see see a transition that though sat in the tension of violence and nonviolence was was able to be certainly far far more positive and changing and these kinds of stories to come out of it than could have been so what was that and how did it happen i mean it seems like it's pretty unprecedented yes um it is a good question it the, the truth and reconciliation commission um was what south africa named their commission more broadly these are known as truth commissions. Um, and I should note at the, at the start of this that it is important perhaps for our students and staff and faculty to know about because it is being discussed as a possible way forward here in the United States Yes. Um, with our racial history. So in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, sought to heal the wounds of apartheid. And maybe I should also offer just a brief glimpse into apartheid. So the apartheid policies began in 1948. Apartheid in Afrikaans means separate. And it was the idea that um, legal segregation of whites and non-whites was the most neighborly path forward, as one of the um, white political officials said at the time. Um, He said this was just about being good neighbors. This is how we get along. Um, And so in South Africa, 80% of the population is black and they were completely disenfranchised from the system. They were stripped of their citizenship. They were forcibly removed from their homes and sent to live out in rural lands or in packed townships in really slum-like conditions. Um, yeah, we, were, we hear township and we think like a nice a nice village square <laughs> with a steeple and a courthouse. Township in South Africa means something no, far, far different. Exactly, it's literally corrugated, you know, sheet metal and cardboard boxes. It is it is literally a slum, a constructed and, slum. Exactly. Yeah. Um, lack of running water, rampant disease, violence. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. 
Um, they had to carry passbooks. They weren't allowed to be in a city for longer than four hours without showing that they were coming or going from work. Um, you had to be able to prove your ethnicity. I, I mean, it all just kinds of archaic, not based on science kinds of policies um, and extremely racist. And um, starting in uh, the 19, well, 1990 is when they ended apartheid officially released Nelson Mandela after 27 years in prison for speaking out against and acting out against the apartheid system. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was one piece in the transition to democracy into, you know, political rights, civil liberties for all South Africans. And it came about as the idea that if people were willing to come forward and tell the truth about their crimes committed under apartheid, that it would begin the healing process. There were a lot of black South Africans and just non-white South Africans who just went missing. And so for a lot of families, they didn't know where their loved ones were and if they were alive or dead. It was presumed that they were dead. Um, and so they wanted answers. And Desmond Tutu, Archbishop um, of, in South Africa um, of the Anglican Church, um, was the, the sort of moral force behind it, who he made the argument that truth leads to healing and reconciliation and eventually forgiveness, which would then sustain the new democratic system. Which would be an unbelievable thing to hear told you, right? Like to hear someone trying to tell you that when you're living in the midst of this, that truth and uh, connection is going to lead to healing that's going to let us get past this. We just need to get rid of all of them, right? That should be the answer. So like that, that's a, it's a brazen thing to, to even suggest, but it, it took off. It did. It did. And many, many people came forward um, and um, a lot of security officials came forward, police officers, um, members of the anti-apartheid movement came forward. So it was, it was whites, blacks, uh, colored as a particular race in South Africa, coloreds, Asians, Indians. I mean, people of every race came forward to speak about the crimes that they committed. And it, it was you know brave of them because it was not a guarantee that they would get amnesty. So you're basically admitting to your crimes in the hopes that you would be granted amnesty. But if not, then you know, you've very openly said what you did. Yeah. And even if you were, that doesn't mean that the family members of those you may have wronged or killed might not seek their own retribution because they aren't going to buy into this particular commission. So the, the level of courage that it took and the, the kind of leadership it took to inspire that kind of courage from Tutu and others, Mandela, um, is, was, yeah, un, unprecedented. Yeah. If, um, there's a really great film, it's called Long Night's Journey in Today. Um, it's Iris Films, I think is who produced it. It was nominated for an Academy Award uh, back in, I think, 2007. It's a really wonderful documentary, a story of four um, cases that went before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So it'll give you a really personalized look at the different ways in which people approached the TRC. And Amy's story and her family's story is, is the first and four in that film. So wow. you, would, you would learn more about her and about her her story but what's the title one more time it's called everyone? long night's journey in today great and i first i just remember that it's iris films it, i can't remember the two filmmakers names 
that's I'm I'm sure our tech savvy students can find it with the, with yeah. the name though. So that's yeah. a, that's it's, a great. It is. I, I show it in my transitions to democracy course and students. It just really provides some human context to this idea of forgiveness. Yeah. So speaking of context, is I mean we we sure it's it's nice to talk about. Sophocles or ancient philosophers maybe talking about some ideas that maybe someday get taken up in a way that maybe shed some light for these these leaders of the last hundred years who have tried to live some of these things out, um, and 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 even um, Mandela, Gandhi, some of these leaders, King obviously have drawn on the words and teachings of Jesus as well, um, but there's not. I mean, what what is is there any any historical precedent for something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, maybe, I mean, we even see that not really working out so well during partition in India. So what is there, what, what did they have to go on? Was there anything that they were able to draw on as like, this, yes. can, this can work? Okay. Yes, and I'm glad you reminded me because I did want to go back to sort of the ideas bounced around in the U.S. right now. Um, Yes, Chile and Argentina both had truth commissions, and you'll notice I said truth commissions and not truth and reconciliation. Uh, South Africa was the first to add the word reconciliation, which was a, a source of conflict, uh, <laughs> oddly yeah, enough, for adding sure. the word reconciliation. Sure. Um, there was a lot of pushback to Tutu's idea that it should be about both truth and reconciliation. So Chile and Argentina had just sought truth. Um, theirs was a bit different in that they offered blanket amnesty to public officials that had engaged in some of the most horrific acts during their dirty war of the, the 1980s um, with their military dictatorships that had engaged in some pretty severe oppressive acts against um, pro-democracy movement activists. So South Africa really borrowed on Chile, on um, Argentina. There have also been some in um, Central um, America. So El Salvador had one. Um, Nicaragua might have as well. I'm not totally sure on that. And then there have been others in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Uganda, I believe. There's actually a really good book by Priscilla Hayner called Unspeakable Truths. And it is a series of case studies of countries that have um, embarked on the Truth Commission process. And South Africa is one of the case studies in the book, um, but she does also look at Argentina and um, Chile and El Salvador and others. And it's an interesting look at how some of them worked well and how some of them didn't always um, end up with the outcome that they wanted. And as you might imagine, in some cases, it just ended up being a, a re-traumatizing effect mm -hmm. in terms of people having to tell their stories over. So she offers some good lessons of how it can be done well. Yeah. And it's an idea that has been thrown around um, in the United States for a while now. It's been talked about in North Carolina um, for a while in terms of some of their, their race history. Um, and I think it's starting to get some attention nationwide now in terms of how this might work in the United States. Wow, very cool. And and it's newish, you know, I mean, the scope of human history, this is a newer idea that that groups can somehow find peace or reconciliation or coming together after generations of, of violence. Um, through dialogue, through um, connecting, listening, civil discourse. Um, that's 
it, it, it's new and so it's developing is what I'm hearing. And so even though Uganda maybe tried it and Chile tried it, well, by the time South Africa tries it, Tutu's got an idea that, well, maybe we can do it a little bit better. And if we trust in this reconciliation piece, it could be a little better. And that maybe maybe by the time we use it here, there's, there's you know, we, we have we have a bit more, but at the in the middle of all this, you, st- you require, it, this whole process requires courageous people, right? It requires people who are willing to try something that they know only will be successful if other people also buy in, but you're gonna step out in faith that if you are willing to bring truth, deep truth to the conversation um, and trust that someone will hear you um, and vice versa, that there can be actually development and growth rather than spinning down that that cycle of violence. Um, so that's it's encouraging and it's daunting, right? This is a a daunting prospect for our for even our students who are are thinking, D- do I have the courage to to have these kinds of conversations just with my my peers and colleagues? Obviously, our students aren't currently living in you know apartheid South Africa but they're wrestling with a um, uh, an idea of racism that's far more subtle or an idea of of uh, of of difference or of of separation that's maybe far more subtle um, what have you seen in the u.s in your time i mean if we just go back to the broader idea of civil discourse um, maybe even in your time appealing you have you seen students engage in these kinds of you know, discussions, what, what have you seen that's, that's either encouraged you or that you think, or that, or that did not go well? Yeah, so I think unfortunately, the, the distance between people politically is starting to feel so much bigger. Mm-hmm. And that is real. Yeah. So if you are feeling like the country is more polarized, you are right, you're correct. The research tells us this. So I'll I'll give a bit of an academic perspective first and then tie it back to our students. So we know from the research from about 15, 20 years ago that elites in our country, and by that I mean, um, you know, high-ranking public officials, sort of the the people working in government, Mm -hmm. um, policymakers, and people working in research institutions that are that are that are well that are mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's um, yeah like producing acad- they're producing yeah like uh, think tanks and, sure yeah yes. yeah so research showed that that they were pretty polarized um, that they were increasingly uh, moving to the ideological extremes. Um, so in other words, Congress in the U.S. was getting more polarized. So there were stories of, you know, senators and members of Congress literally crossing the aisles to have lunch with one another. Or there were, you know, these infamous stories of going to the pub with one another afterward, um, which then made for a much sort of more civil discourse on the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate because there was a personal connection. And by the 1990s, early 2000s, that just it wasn't happening anymore. And members of Congress were um, being told, essentially, by their, the high-ranking party officials to just not do that anymore. And it became sort of a stake your ground kind of um, 
form of governance. And what we knew was that the general population did not follow that trend. So elected officials were sort of out of step with the American public. The American public was much more moderate and in the middle. Hmm. And we had a lot of hope that the American public would sort of rein in their elected officials. Like if, if you look back at you know democratic theory, the idea is that your elected officials are meant to mirror the interests of those that they're representing. And so we thought it would be that rubber band effect of like pull them back into the center or at least you know have them govern in a way that caters to center issues yeah. as well. Yeah. And unfortunately that has not happened. The, the opposite, the, the rubber band went in the opposite direction. And we're seeing that elected officials and the political elite have essentially pulled the American public along with them where to they the have, extremes. Where they have led, the Americans have followed yes. eventually. Yes, and I, I think you know there, there are a lot of theories as to why this has happened. Social media and the, the way that media comes to us these days has exacerbated this. And so we can very easily go into a media silo, an echo chamber, where we only hear stories that align with our views. Um, so your news feed on your phone becomes catered to you. And that has meant that the polarization of the people has followed the polarization of our elected officials. And so we do still have many, many moderates. I mean, there's, I would be remiss as an academic if I didn't say there are still a lot of Americans who are very moderate. Um, but unfortunately, we are seeing an increasing level of polarization. And to our students here, then how would I relate this? Um, I see in them a hesitance to engage in any kind of political conversation because, I, I mean, I understand this. As somebody who is so conflict averse myself, hmm. I sometimes wake up and think, how on earth did I choose this career? Like, <laughs> what? the heck was I actually thinking here? <laughs> like Moses in front of the burning bush. Uh, completely, <laughs> yes. like what on earth am I thinking? I like, I can't stand having really hard conversations. Mm. I force myself to do it, but it mm. is not in my nature to do this. And so when I have students say like, I just don't want to talk about this and they, I get it. They don't want to have to get in an argument. They don't want to put themselves in a situation where they feel angry. Sometimes they feel like they don't have all the facts. They just know what they feel. And so mm. they don't want to be pushed on, you know, what's your knowledge on this? And all of these reasons that I can understand, they don't want to have these conversations. Um, because I, you know, political conversations just seem to end in a lot of yelling these days and a lack of willingness to, to hear the other side. Um, but they also feel like they also aren't given an alternative path towards figuring out what they might actually really think about the thing because they the conversation risks too much exactly they don't they're not exposed to other ideas because the conversation gets shut down probably by both sides before it ever even happens yeah i, I mean i can see i'm a ucsd student i can see on that campus oftentimes it's well the the, the pitch of the argue of the conversation is going to become an argument so fast that there's not a lot of dialogue happening there either uh, because there's just like everyone's so entrenched and so devoted to their their knowledge of the whichever side um, there's it's it's less it's more about like it's not worth the risk because I'm not going to get anywhere but whereas I experience a similar thing with our students here that there's also in the to have the conversation it's almost that it's almost this inverted effect from my perspective that I've seen so far that students on our campus are so um, they're so 
uh, invested in and care so much about the relationship, we have relational students in a relational culture that that's really maybe more what drives the hesitancy is I'm, it's not worth risking this relationship. I care about this person deeply. I have this connection to them. Um, and I care about our culture here and our community here and the, the deep, uh, uh, peace and care that comes out of it. I don't want to, it's not worth risking disrupting that for a conversation that's just going to be polarizing. So I don't know if you, yes. you also see that. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I think it sort of plays into maybe some of the the norms that many of us grew up with, which is like good Christian kids, you know, we speak kindly and mm. there's this resistance to having um, maybe a conversation that, that elevates. And again, that's where I go back to, you know, we, sh- we don't need to confuse civility with always being polite. It's just how, but you know, you can do it in a way that still has these moments that can be a bit antagonistic or hard, but it doesn't need to ruin a friendship. Um, So in my intro to political science course, I have them do a political participation portfolio and one of, there's a menu of options, things they can do and one of the things they can do, and I just added this a few years ago actually, maybe just even two years ago, and students love it. It's the option of going to a meal or out to coffee with somebody that you don't align with politically. And there are ground rules. You have to just both agree that you will tell your story and your experience with a commitment to truly listen to the other person. And if they both agree to that and then sit down and break bread together and engage in this listening process, the, the feedback that I've gotten, the analyses that they write up about this, I mean, really have often choked me up because they start with, I was so nervous, I was not looking forward to this, but I really wanted to do this. And they end with, I'm so glad that I did. I learned something about this person. I see a little bit more. And they almost always end with, we still don't agree. <laughs> like, that's still there. Yeah. But it's that empathy again of just, you know, that willingness to understand at least where they're coming from. Wow. And I've seen it with roommates. I've seen it with friends doing it, but I also see it. They, they go with a parent. Um, I often see they do it with their grandparents, Hmm. which I love, um, sort of that intergenerational political conversation. Yeah. It's really, really an amazing thing to, to read through. So you're, you tend to be non-confrontational in nature, but I'm hearing a challenge here. I'm hearing you throw a little challenge out there, maybe to our students that they that they try this. So maybe maybe try try that with a, a sibling or someone really trusted or or close to you. See how it goes, and maybe maybe in your Zoom class you're in where you've maybe noticed someone might have a different opinion than you on the other side of that class, uh, on the other side of that call in one of those little boxes <laughs> where their, their face is yeah. being videoed in, uh, could you send them a, a message and ask them if they'd like to have a conversation? That would be, that would take some courage, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I think the reward is, is completely worth it. And I, I do find that if you can include a meal or a coffee in there, which mm-hmm. of course is hard in this world, <laughs> yeah. but with more students coming back to campus, maybe Perhaps it's something, go sit in the Greek and, and engage in a conversation. Yeah. Wow. Um, so there's that, that, that hope there. This is this entire idea of civil discourse comes to a hope in something other than what, what our, 
the nature of what we what we think conflict and power have to be about can actually be inverted and bring us together bring, bring us closer together as people and see each other better I have a podcast recommendation on that note yes. too. Please, <laughs> no, too, no, so great. random. No, I have a very close it. girlfriend who um, we adore each other beyond words, and we don't really align. We have very pretty different political perspectives, but very similar values, um, both very deep in our faith, and I just adore her and. Um, we have great conversations, hard conversations, and she introduced me to the podcast, Dolly Parton's America. And I mean, our students are probably rolling their eyes. They're like, really, Dolly Parton? You all should listen to Dolly Parton. Hmm. But it's, an, it's a fascinating podcast, and, and the, idea, the, the guy who created it, he has this fantastic TED Talk, I should look that up too, um, <laughs> where he talks about how Dolly Parton is this like unifying force in America, like one of the last remaining things in America that People Nobody of all <laughs> political stripes love Dolly yeah, Parton. Sure. And I was like, I love the very premise of this. And so the, the podcast is sort of dedicated to this idea of, of what unifies us still mm. in America. Hmm. It's wonderful. Awesome. Wonderful. That actually, that reminds me of um, one of my closest friends from Point Loma. Maybe just as an encouragement to those students who might try to do this. One of my closest friends at Point Loma, he and I have always disagreed politically, very different worldviews. He's brilliant. He's um, a public servant in Maryland now, uh, James. Uh, we started with that disagreement of knowing that we came from different perspectives and had a good amount of tension over that, but just from pursuing each other uh, and seeing all the ways we do connect and all the things we do share in common, it's a, it's a friendship that I would say almost it has, it has a level of trust that almost, or a type of trust in it that can't be even replicated by those I agree with. So my, my close friends I agree with so much because James and I know that we can trust each other even when we don't disagree on things or don't, don't completely agree on things. So there's just another, another example of how powerful That's, that can be. And it yeah. starts here on this campus. That is so true. I mean, yeah, she and I have had conversations that, you know, I think we look at each other like two-headed people, like what on earth are you thinking? And at the end of the day, I know that she absolutely has my back and, and I have hers and we would do anything for each other's families. And that mm. at the end of the day is what we know goes well beyond any any sort of political or social conversation we yeah. would have. And you need, like, I need James because exactly. I, need, I need to be able to test my ideas and my thoughts against James and I need him to be able to shoot it down and he needs, it's good for, for me to learn how to, how to challenge James when I think his, his, you know, gone too far down a particular path. In totally. I, I mean, I could not agree more. I have had moments where, you know, you think recently I've thought like, I just don't know if I can even talk to this person, I'm not necessarily talking about this particular girlfriend, but just people in my life. And then you're absolutely right. I have had to remind myself over and over, not only do I need to keep this person in my life, I need more people like this in my life because you're right. I, I do not ever want to have myself in one of those ideological silos where I'm only exposed to the ideas that I already believe in. I absolutely need people to push me. And that, I mean, something you said earlier reminded me of this too with our, with our students where having these conversations I think should shift your ideas. I don't know when in America being a flip-flopper became a bad thing. To me, that's the mark of a thinking yeah. dynamic individual. Totally. 
Yes. We all are experiencing life every single day and growing and seeing new things, meeting new people, gaining new perspectives, reading new literature. Uh, of course that should change your perspective. Should you always hold true to your values? And yes, absolutely, you've got that moral compass, but you might change your perspective on particular policy issues and that's not a sign of weakness, that's a sign of intellect, right? Yeah. That's the sign of being an empathetic, dynamic individual. Mm. So embrace that. Mm. And I would say if you wanna see that at work in our current political system, just stop looking at Congress and actually maybe take a look at your, well, you can look at San Diego city council or any other county or city council pretty much, I, I, I would say. Yeah. And you're going to see that that uh, the practicality of needing to get things done on a local level. Um, actually many of those leaders, most of them, um, operate that way. Totally. Pothole yeah. politics, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to get things done. You got to pick the trash up so we don't yes. have time to stand on, you know, the ideology of X, Y, or Z. That's yeah. so true. Yeah. Um, so maybe there's some, some, uh, bit of, you know, hope there if, or, or leadership or example there if, if you're willing to, to look in, in those places. Um, well, maybe just would love to hear if there's any, if students are willing to approach those kinds of conversations, do you have any any tips or direction on how how you have a, a civil conversation on potentially challenging issues with a, a colleague or a family member? Yes, so in my work on deliberation and deliberative discourse, one of the things that we're trained on is starting every conversation with a story. So if you're talking about a particular political issue, um, let's say it's healthcare or immigration, you just start the conversation with, tell me your experience with this issue, like a really broad question and let that person just answer. It disarms everyone in mm -hmm. that moment. Um, it's a really good way to just start the harder policy question with the, the human context. So start by asking them a story or for their experience. And again, truly listen. One of the worst things we can do in these conversations is be listening with an ear toward how are you going to respond and what are you going to say next? Hmm, yeah. They can read Ooh, that in your hard. body language and that's going to be off putting to anyone. So it's, it's really truly listening. Hmm. And then asking them questions like, you know, tell me about sort of who is powerful in your life and you gaining your political beliefs. And then you'll hear stories about, you know, an influential teacher or a pastor, um, a parent, um, their education in general, their their demographics, right? We know that race and age and socioeconomic status all play into yeah, different perspectives, and yeah. you know, chances are they they have different demographic demographic char characteristics as you do. Um, so just asking them, you know, how do you think you developed these beliefs? Have you changed them recently? Um, how, which, which beliefs do you have that are really important to you? And really just sort of analyzing less the content and more just tell me what shapes you. Hmm. And I think that also then just gives you a glimpse into the why hmm. rather than just this response to the what. Hmm. Okay, yeah. So there's some uh, practical tips there. Uh, uh, there's also, there's maybe something about your mental preparation, right? Like what, what you, how you 
how you open your mind up to, to the conversation, right? Is that, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a piece that you probably have started as well. Is there, is there a tip there on how to, how to do that? Well, one thing that we talk about in deliberative democracy studies is that every sort of policy solution has trade-offs. And once you realize that whatever you're advocating for staunchly has downsides, then you realize that your your guard comes down a bit. Hmm. So I prepare myself mentally by thinking about how my ideas for policy solutions are not perfect. Hmm. And when I approach a conversation and realize I don't have all the answers, I have what I think are really good ideas. I feel pretty strongly about them sometimes, but I also know, you know, if I'm advocating for one aspect, then that's sort of sacrificing something else, right? Because that's just how, you know, this in policy studies, like there are, there are trade-offs. If you're advocating for tightened security, you might be foregoing liberty. And so everything is going to have trade-offs. And so you approach, I approach a conversation just realizing my ideas aren't perfect and I'm willing to hear how they're not perfect. And I might feel frustrated in this conversation, both in terms of how my ideas aren't perfect, that's frustrating, nobody wants to hear that, but also I might feel frustrated because the person might say something that I think is just offensive or like, how can you, how can you say that? But I think in my years of having political conversations, I've just tried to adjust myself to feelings of frustration Hmm. and discomfort and realizing that it's a moment in time and you move on from it. It's like when I go running, I hate it when I'm doing it, right? Like it's not a comfortable thing to be doing, but the benefits are so worth it. So it's a, what I'm hearing is that it's a practice that that requires a discipline. So it's, I think so. Yeah. So it's a practice in the, in the sense of your, you, as you do it, you, it's iterative and you, you get better. You, you maybe, maybe fail and then maybe get better and then maybe notice what you've, how you improve. Um, and you cannot get necessarily get better at it without practicing it. Um, but that it requires a discipline and then maybe the motivation for the discipline comes from that knowledge that, well, in fact, the other direction, the other way just leads to ultimately more division, more strife and, less, less expansiveness of myself, less growth and, and, you know, a a, a smallness of myself as I contain myself within ideas that I want to hold on to. So maybe there's some, some hope there. And that's why I think your point about having friends that are politically different from you. I mean, ideological diversity, I think is critical. Hmm. I'm not saying you use those friends to practice your yeah. <laughs> your conversation skills, but I am saying it's it's necessary in your life. And I will say I I love social media for so many reasons that it raises awareness about political issues, but I generally think that these conversations should not happen on social media. Yeah. I just I've never seen it end well. So if you want to have true heartfelt in-depth conversations, they need to be in person. Hmm. That's that's also my experience and and I know um, initially might be challenging for for some of our students but um, 
but that what I'm also hearing is the challenge the challenge here comes with quite a bit of hope that our our student population shares a culture and an understanding with each other that even though they might go out into the world and not necessarily see people as willing to be courageous in having civil conversations that here they have a chance now to practice this with with a good deal of hope that they actually can be successful in it and can then go out in the world and carry on this this tradition that's uh of of these people we've talked about and um that uh, requires courageous individuals to to risk and to trust so thank you for that yeah. thank you for the yeah. um, the hope and the encouragement that this um, can be powerful and good in the lives of our students and give hope in a time when when so many of them are looking around thinking everybody's going crazy everybody's yelling at each other uh, and I either need to be quiet or I have to join a side and you're saying no, there is nay. plenty of room in the middle. Yeah. Turn off the talking heads on TV. Mm. Turn off the social media feed and and grab a person. S- yeah, exactly, exactly. Good. And just be be ready to listen. Thank you, um, thank you for that. Uh, so we're gonna wrap up with our rapid fire questions. Um, curious what you have been reading lately. Okay, I just finished the Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Okay. Amazing. And always The Economist magazine. Okay. I also read The Economist. It's interesting you were talking about turning off the talking heads on TV. and Exactly. <laughs> uh, people often ask me, well, where do you get your news? And I said, well, I never turn on news media because it's not, because it's not news. Exactly. It's, it is, which is so sad, but it, you're right. It is no longer news. Yeah. So are there, I mean, The Economist, why? Why The Economist? Oh, such wonderful in-depth analysis, but also, you know, in the front, the sort of short, you know, snippets of what hap- what has happened that week. I love the global perspective. I love the mm. non-American perspective. Um, Non-American. Why do you just because why. I do think I'm I'm steeped in you know American politics, and so I, I get a lot of that. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I don't listen to American politics, but it just I love how it intentionally takes a global perspective um it's you know based coming out of britain um it's just interesting to hear how it's impacting different parts it's one of the the only media outlets that i know that more intentionally focuses on parts of the world that are underreported on Mm. so parts of the the less developed world that i have a real interest in um and just such wonderful writing yeah, yeah, I, and I will add good. the the Atlantic to that as well. If you have you know more time to go in depth on some of these stories, it's some of the most beautiful writing okay. ever in the Atlantic. Yeah, and and the Economist has a massive data unit that they're yes. the the some of the best data reporting on the planet. Yes, and I I love the Economist for its centrality ideologically i mean you you sort of can't ever predict which way it might lean a bit and in any given story it might lean a little left a little right and i i love that Mm -hmm. i love that it it sort of sits in the middle in that way i i have noticed that um as conservatives have sort of or at least republicans have shifted their platform a little bit there's been more criticism from Republicans of the Economists because they they do they they take a globalist perspective they tend to, mm-hmm. and they they admit they tend to admit their bias and say this is where we why we think this is where this should go. But I was uh, maybe two years ago I watched um, at Davos 
the editor of the Econo- the chief editor of mm-hmm. the Economist, interviewed Steve Bannon, and uh, Bannon, who is of course one of the architects of Trump's Trump's um, uh, f- first campaign, uh, said. Oh, I mean, I certainly, you know, of course, accuse this of being a leftist newspaper, but I read The Economist every single week because they their data is better than anyone else on the planet. I disagree with their analysis, but I still have to read this because no one else is reporting what's actually happening out there better than, yeah, <laughs> than this group. Yeah. I thought that was quite quite an interesting uh, thing to hear him say. Yeah, they do they do a great study of democracy around the world. Their intelligence unit, the study of democracy. Yes, yeah. it's well, I'm sure we could go on and on about I this know, as we a could topic, geek but out about the I, would, I would encourage students. Um, the Economist is like $165 a year for a subscription. It's but expensive. But there is a, a student. great student discount, yeah. and I believe we have access to it through PLNU Library. Yes, and you can. A- that's what I was going to get into, is you can actually access it through the library. You can get the whole Economist. It doesn't come as the normal, you know, it's article by article, um, the way you would find articles in in a database, but you can get access to Economist articles uh, for free through our through our database. So, mm-hmm. okay, uh, not rapid fire, I guess. But what uh, what have you been listening to or watching? I've been obsessed with Beyonce's Black Parade. That's music, obviously. Fun. And then also a podcast. I'm um, kind of obsessed right now with Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. Oh, cool. He's I, so funny and so smart. I didn't know he was cool. Oh, it's great. Okay. It's great. Cool. Um, who has made an impact on you in the last week or two? So this one was hard because I, I, my instinct is to say every student in my classes right now, <laughs> yeah. I love you all. Um, but I'm going to name three, and that's Chloe Defner, Anthony Cruz, and Alfie Yelmhammer. And the three of them this week, for various reasons, life is just hard with remote learning. I mean, I'll just point to Alfie. He's, you know, remote learning in Stockholm, um, nine hours ahead. Um, and Anthony and Chloe have, have had a, just other things that I've talked to them about this week. But all three of them have really inspired me. Um, because they, despite the challenges of remote learning, are giving 110% like they always have. Um, they're so engaged. Their level of intellectual curiosity has not seemed to be dampened at all. They're still giving it their all, and I know that there are just challenges that are difficult, and um, they're they're just amazing individuals. So, and I, I mean, again, I think that about all my. Yeah. I hate to even name three, but <laughs> Chloe, Anthony, and Alfie. Spot. It's my fault. Uh, well, uh. well, thank you to those students for inspiring your, your professor. Um, this has been so wonderful, Dr. Lupo. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your encouragement so to students. And, um, and you continue to do that work. I think, uh, you know, if, as students may have um, uh, questions or be more curious about civil discourse, you are open to Absolutely. hearing from them, talking to them. Don't be afraid to reach out. Um, but uh, yeah, we appreciate this amount of time to, to get your your experience out to, to all of our community. So Thank fun. You. Thank you, Scott. Um, this has been Point Blank. Uh, thank you for tuning in. A uh, little note that I will be on vacation with my wife, maybe somewhere in Montana for the next couple weeks. Uh, And so this will be our last episode for a couple weeks. Have a little break. In the meantime, uh, I would direct you to take a listen to Bella Passi's 
podcast, Unmuted from Mosaic, uh, also available on Spotify. And there will be a link uh, to that in our bio for this show. Um, some wonderful stuff coming out there. So enjoy the next couple of weeks and we'll talk to you again uh, end of September. Take care. Whoop. Montana will be nice. Yeah. 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 Yeah.